Hi, I'm Lonnie Diane Rich, and this is Still Pretty. Okay, so today we're going to talk about Gone, episode 11 of season 6. This episode aired on January 8th, 2002, and was both written and directed by David Fury, with story editing from Rebecca Rand Kirshner and Stephen S. DeKnight. Now, one of the things I'm going to try to do here on Still Pretty is use actual clips from the show in my critique. This is a visual medium. This is one of the benefits of doing this on YouTube. But I think it's going to risk, like, copyright infringement claims. So, uh, I mean, technically, under the Fair Use Clause of the Copyright Act covering criticism, this should be okay. But this is YouTube. And they, they like to pull stuff down, and I know it happens a lot, so I'm going to just sort of hope that this works. Um, and if it gets pulled down, if I get, you know, like horribly, horribly sued, I guess I'll just put an unedited version up or a version without the visuals or maybe with, with uh, you know, with still shots or something. I'm going to figure it out. But for right now, we're going to be taking a risk. So this is going to be fun. Uh, I actually enjoy watching Gone a lot. I mean, it's funny, although it's sitcom funny, which isn't my favorite brand of Buffy humor, but it is a diverting hour of television. If there weren't so many opportunities for deeper themes and more complex storytelling here, I think I'd enjoy it a lot more. I mean, let's not forget that one of my favorite episodes of Angel is Disharmony. I mean, I think I've earned my street cred as having no problem with silly episodes. But with so much sadness and darkness here, especially at this time during season six, the humor feels a little brittle and, and kind of evasive. Um, it feels like we're making jokes when we should be doing something deeper. And the, the harsh swings in tone feel a little like standing on the deck of a ship over swelling waters. I don't have a sense of my feet under me in the story. And in the end, I feel somewhat disappointed by it. So let's get to the details. We open the episode with Buffy clearing out all the magic stuff out for Willow and struggling with getting rid of Spike's Zippo lighter. She talks about Willow's magic addiction as an analogy for her relationship with Spike. And you can see how she struggles with the idea of going cold turkey. Um, I've never been a huge fan of the magic equals drug addiction metaphor, although I think there are reasons why they went this way. Power can be addictive, and when your power is something that helps save the world on a regular basis, it's a bit more complicated than, say, quitting blow or alcohol. Uh, Buffy's desire for Spike is probably a bit closer to the drug metaphor because he makes her feel good in the moment but terrible later and is ultimately destructive. I don't think you can say the same for Willow. Magic is her work. It's her purpose. It has positive outcomes when used properly. And simplifying this down to an addiction is a bit facile. And when the tactic is taken with a show that doesn't typically shy away from complication and consequence, it feels like a cheap shortcut through territory that could be much more interesting, much richer than what we're playing with. The one part of the story that never felt right to me is the moment when Xander comes to talk to Willow, sharing Buffy's blind visible plight. And Willow says that if everyone thinks she's just going to slip back into magic as well, she might as well do it, right? Um, as though the problem is what everyone thinks, not the fact that she's out of control with that power. 
This storyline should be about controlling the thing that you can't quit, having to ride that line on something that you you can't entirely give up because that's so much more complex and so much harder. Because when Buffy's life is on the line and Willow refuses to turn to magic, we're, I think, expected to think, good for you, girl, instead of you have the power to save your best friend's life and you won't use it. In the end, after Buffy's had her day with Spike and Willow has had her day without magic, they sit and commiserate about making good first steps. For Buffy, this is textually about having felt for the first time since coming back that she didn't want to die, or at least cared a little if she lived or not. But it's also about having fallen into temptation again, and I I like that we've got some of that complexity in there. That all said, I do really like when Buffy goes into a room and hacks away at her hair after Spike leaves, having called her Goldilocks. One of my favorite things about season six is Buffy's struggle with her identity. At the end of season five, when Buffy sacrificed herself to save Dawn, she knew so completely, so thoroughly who she was. She had that certainty. She was secure in her identity and she was ready for that sacrifice. Since coming back, she's had no idea who she is and any identity such as Goldilocks is going to feel coarse and brittle compared to what she was. So cutting off her hair, I thought was a really, really powerful moment. One of the biggest problems with this episode is that we skip over deeper conflict and turn to thinner conflicts. Uh, The social worker is the bad guy threatening to take Dawn away four minutes into her first house visit is really thin. I mean, first of all, this may be just because I'm the daughter of a social worker. Their job is to keep that family together as much as they possibly can. With Buffy, you have a young girl who's undoubtedly struggling, but has a stable home and obviously loves her sister very much. Continuity and stability are the social worker's first goals. So all these thin jokes, Spike's weirdness, Buffy stumbling over Willow being gay, even though they don't gay together, not that there's anything wrong with that, the magic weed... Uh, leads all this into the social worker making the snap judgment to take Dawn away. And it, it feels really, really thin. And it makes the social worker into almost a cartoonish bad guy. Now, you all have heard me say a million times that reality is no defense for fiction. And it absolutely is not. It's also no condemnation for fiction. But If the fiction is going to veer from reality, it needs to do so in a way that earns that diversion. And I don't think that we do that with Doris. She is simply a bad social worker on a power trip, and she's a really poorly written character. The other thin source of conflict is Dawn. In the opening, she's petty and whiny about the candles and the Cocopelli statue, and I understand her being mad at Willow. But her anger with Buffy for letting this happen is part of the reason why I think so many people don't like Dawn. Yes, she's a teenager, and teenagers are known for being petulant and mercurial, but she also loves Willow deeply, and it's Willow's magical addiction. And remember, whether we like that element or not, that's what the show is going with. Uh, That's causing Willow to not be Willow. If she loves Willow and wants her back and has just gotten her sister back from the dead, I think this kid would be packing up that stuff and gladly tossing things in the box. Her anger at Buffy feels a little thin here, and it doesn't work for me. It feels like we're just inserting this conflict to have it rather than exploring a deeper conflict, which is what we should get when Buffy is invisible. But we don't. Let's talk about the most important thing. The haircut is completely adorable. You may remember that we did an invisibility as metaphor story already once in Buffy in season one's Out of Mind, Out of Sight, in which a girl who felt invisible in high school became actually invisible and used her power to wreak revenge on the people who tormented her. 
mostly Cordelia. As a matter of fact, Buffy actively references that when she's talking to Xander and Anya in the magic shop. Here, invisibility is visited upon Buffy when she accidentally gets in the way of the geek trio who are fooling around with their new tech. And Buffy's response to being invisible is to be giddy and goofy and have sex with Spike. Not that a girl needs an excuse to have sex with Spike. No, she doesn't need an excuse. Here, the invisibility relates to freedom for Buffy, freedom from her responsibilities, from her identity, from the weight of everything she's been through. And if this were a story in which Buffy's big problem was shame, which, aside from her affair with Spike, it really isn't, then this would make more sense. If the only problem she had was that people would know what she was doing, this could work. But those aren't her problems. Her problems are feeling disconnected from her friends and family and trying to maintain a stable home for Dawn. Invisibility actually makes all of those problems worse. It doesn't solve them. Having people unable to see her creates a wider gulf, and that's what's been hurting her. So as a metaphor, aside from the spike thing, it doesn't really work. Okay, so how about invisibility is just a fun little device? Conceptually, I think, yeah, sure. It's fun to see Buffy be Blin visible. It's fun to hear her laugh and be playful and gleeful. But I think in a medium like television that relies so strongly on its visuals, having your main character be invisible for most of the episode makes things a little complicated when you spend such a huge chunk of your time looking at blank air and an out-of-focus background, trying to imagine Buffy in that space. It just doesn't work. Sure, sometimes there's a telephone receiver or a pizza box in the air. Sometimes Spike is having sex with the air. But it all feels and looks strange. In the one moment when we really need to see Buffy's face, when she listens to the voicemail from Xander and reacts to the news that she's going to turn into tapioca pudding, we're just looking at an out-of-focus kitchen window. And the fight scene at the end with the geek trio where everyone except Willow is blind visible, it's just uncomfortable. I do not envy David Fury the job of directing this episode, but I can't help but feel like the decision to shoot empty air was a mistake. Maybe make the characters see-through or something so we can see them, but we understand that other people can't. I don't know. But this itself just doesn't work, and it adds to the thinness of an already thin-feeling episode. It just doesn't have the weight that it needs to have. But the best moment during these invisible escapades actually comes from Dawn. This is a moment where I'm completely with her. When Buffy's laughing and floating pizza boxes, Dawn is freaked out. You're freaking invisible, Buffy. This is when Dawn being angry at Buffy makes sense. Having lost Buffy once before, having recently lost Tara, having Willow going through this whole transformative thing that makes Willow feel like a stranger. Another loss, even just a visual one, is going to trigger Dawn. And this is one of the times that Dawn is actually completely right, right to be upset and right in her assessment of the situation. <sighs> In a show with invisibility, it's easy to make sight puns. I'll be watching you from Doris, the social worker, is actually okay because it sounds like something that she would actually say. Stop trying to see me from Buffy is working the sight pun dough a little too hard. And Buffy says it not once, but twice. It's in the script because she's going to be invisible and it just clunks every time. <sighs> All right, I know I'm in the minority for loving the Geek Trio, but I actually quite like them even here. They're goofy, but they're supposed to be goofy. They're incompetent, and they're supposed to be. Yes, it undercuts the threat that they present, but then 
There's Warren, whose growing darkness shows when he's the only one who doesn't care that their goofing around might actually kill Buffy. In an ordinary season with ordinary antagonists, I say that accidentally hitting Buffy with the invisibility gun would be a misstep because it makes them seem less dangerous. Except it's exactly this, boys playing in a man's world, that makes them so dangerous. The fact that they have no idea what they're doing, that they have an embarrassment of unearned power, that they don't know how to handle, that makes them work so well for me. I like what that says about the nature of power and what happens when people who don't understand their power try to wield it. Yes, I'm talking about the president. I'm talking about the fucking president. Okay. <sighs> Two of my favorite geek moments are in this episode. One, when Willow discovers their hideout and she knows Jonathan and Warren and has no idea who Andrew is. The joke that his high school evil didn't even rank an episode, that we only know him as the brother of the guy who released the wild dogs on the prom. I love that. And I always, always, always adore it whenever it shows up. The other thing is the arch nemesis. It's a silly joke, but I love it. One of the other problems with Gone is the sitcom -y humor. It's not that Buffy can't be funny. Buffy is funny all the time. But it's that Buffy's humor usually comes from character, not situation. Here we use Buffy's invisibility to have her mock a girl in a studded baseball cap, to torment Doris the social worker and possibly have her committed, and then, of course, have sex with Spike. And look, I want Buffy to have sex with Spike as much as the next girl, but that whole scene with poor James Marsters, who, by the way, gets the prize for good sport of the week, is just painful to watch until he sets her down for using him. Which brings us to our next topic. Okay, with the exception of the stop trying to see me and the invisisex, I like the Spike and Buffy we get in this episode. First, it's the only thing that makes sense with the invisibility motif offering Buffy her freedom, so that actually works. And once we get past the goofiness of it all, it's a nice escalating beat for their relationship. Spike has loved Buffy for a long time, as well as he can love. And this shift into a pseudo-mutual love-ish thing with Buffy is a big deal for him. Even when he's getting sex, it's not enough. He wants a connection. When he tells her that the only reason she's there is that she's not there, that's a poignant moment. And when he reminds her that free of life means death, that lands. James Marsters is amazing, and being able to pull that off in the same scene where he's screwing air and having his earlobe yanked in what looks to be a very uncomfortable mechanical effect is nothing less than extraordinary. Whatever you think of Spike, you have to hand it to this actor. He is phenomenal. And I know some people are going to want commentary on when Invisibuffy goes down on Spike while he's asking her to leave, violating consent issues, but creating an opportunity for a pretty solid joke, and I'm okay with it. The joke is a good kicker to the scene, and these two are on an equal power level, meaning that if Spike doesn't want Buffy to assault his manhood, it's not happening. Also, he doesn't say no. He says that's cheating. So I give it a pass. <laughs> My final thoughts on this episode are that it has its moments, but is ultimately a thin, flat pancake. There are a lot of missed opportunities for richer storytelling here, while making a space for a lot of sitcom-y jokes that come off a little brittle and flavorless. It's not the best of Buffy, but it's not the worst either. And Buffy's hair? Super cute. Thanks so much. I'm Lonnie Diane Rich, and I may be dead, but at least I'm still pretty. See you later. <laughs> Still Pretty is a chipperish media production and is entirely patron-supported. To find out how you can keep us in production, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Mm -hmm.